hello and welcome as I munch my knobby's nuts to the teeming excitement of the On The House election headquarters, the Feathers pub here in Westminster, where the tables are strewn with policy papers and bags, as I say, of knobby's nuts. It's October the 31st, Britain is still in the EU, and ditches all over the land are wondering where the Prime Minister is. <laughs> if you've spotted him Happy sitting Halloween. in one, please send us a picture. There is a small cash prize. I'm Philip Lee. I'm all fired up to stand as the Liberal Democrat candidate for Wokingham on December the 12th. And my good friend and podcast partner, Sam Gima, has an announcement too, don't you, Sam? Well, I will be standing in the uber-marginal seat of Kensington, and um, it, where the Liberal Democrats did incredibly well in the uh, European elections came first and got more votes than the combined Conservative and Brexit Party and Labour Party trailed a distant third so there is a real opportunity to win the seat for the Liberal Democrats for the first time. As it happens, it's the seat I lived around uh, close to Elscourt when I finished university and started working in London so I know bits of the constituency well and um, I obviously thought about whether or not I was going to run any sorry but I don't think you want to... I think running against people who you've campaigned alongside for years could actually get quite toxic quite quickly. So I've swapped a 24,000 majority for a, an uber marginal, but I'm very pleased that I'm, vo- I'm on the side where I'm making arguments that I believe in. It's what brave principle people do, Sam. You know, Th- and, thank uh, you for uh, I mean, I, the only... Uh, Kensington I know a bit, the northern part of the constituency was served by the hospital that I trained in as a medical student. So all around sort of Grenfell Tower area, all of those estates, and just north of the A40, the Westway, is, is, was an area which I got to know quite well when I was at St Mary's in Paddington. So best of luck, Sam. Well, um, thank you. I mean, the good news is there is a poll out today by Best for Britain, which shows that um, the Liberal Democrats have a very strong chance of winning, even though they came third in 2017. And I think, I think for all of us, the 2017 election result is actually irrelevant in terms of predicting this election, because Labour was polling 40% at that point, and they're nowhere near that. Now, my script is telling me that Somebody from Bucks Fizz is running against you, Sam. Is this right? Yes, Jay Aston from Bucks Fizz, who, as it happens, lives. She's in made East her. She's made her mind up. She she is my current constituent. Yeah, <laughs> but I think she might be living in the land of make believe. Yes, yes. <laughs> am, am I giving you the lines? You, you have given me the line. Perfect. They're absolutely perfect. Your, your cultural references, Philip, are, are, are the, terrific. Uh, 1980s running through my veins, in my marrow. Shows you've got a hinterland. <laughs> well, uh, let's moving on. Uh, this week's special guest was one of our favourite colleagues when we were all members of the Conservative Party. How times have changed. And you'll probably be moved up to the top of unnamed number 10 sources naughty list when he's seen consulting with us. Um, he's a prominent Remainer, a mover of major amendments on Brexit, not least the ones that established and strengthened the meaningful vote that gave Parliament, not the government, control over a final Brexit decision. He's fought no deal and prorogation, and it's no exaggeration to say we might well be out of the EU already by now, if not for his efforts. 
He's now sitting as an independent, having lost the whip during Boris Johnson's night of the short temper back in September. And he wasn't going, he wasn't among the 10 MPs who got the whip back earlier this week. So he would definitely still be on the naughty step. It's the MP for Beaconsfield, the Right Honourable Dominic Grieve, QC MP. Dominic, that's a long introduction, but I think it's very well deserved and you're very welcome onto this podcast. Thank How you. are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, somebody said... You've been cast into outer darkness by the Prime Minister. I thought I'd been cast out into the light. <laughs> Leave them behind. You've left the dark side. You've left the dark side. So I feel quite liberated. I'm a bit daunted at the prospect of an election campaign in November, uh, having to build uh, an organisation from scratch, but inundated with offers of help, large numbers of people coming forward and saying they want to campaign for us, and we've just got to get ourselves organised and get ourselves out there and spread the message. I have no idea what the outcome will be, uh, but I'm determined to give it a go. I take it you weren't agitating to get the whip back? No, I didn't agitate to get the whip back. I was obviously intrigued about getting the whip back and whether we, it would be returned. Uh, particularly puzzled that when somebody like Amber Rudd, for example, actually said that she was leaving and wanted the whip back... Um, she couldn't even get it, which suggests a level of vindictiveness by the Prime Minister of an astonishing character. But then I've given but up you're trying not to understand are you? it. No, I'm not surprised at all. Uh, you know, there is this superficial bonhomie, but actually behind that, I think he's a rather vindictive individual, um, particularly with people who found him out. And so for that reason, uh, I wasn't expecting to be offered it back. Uh, and I and a number of colleagues, as you know, are not, clearly not going to get it back. It's inconceivable. But what you're doing is incredibly unusual. You're running as an independent. It's not a by-election. You are the existing MP and you're a very high-profile MP. I mean, I, if I had my own way, I would go as far as saying a national treasure. Uh, Dominic. But how are you going to run this campaign? How are you going to win it? The message I want to get over to my constituents is a simple one. Uh, this election is about the future of our country on a long-term basis, not actually just the next four or five years. If they elect a majority Johnson government, then we will undoubtedly leave the EU, I suppose, on the 31st of January. We may do so earlier, for the very good reason that I think there will be fewer and fewer moderate Conservatives willing to speak up for something else. So they have a choice. If they think that this is an issue on which it would be wise for the country to pause and have an opportunity of thinking again and have a people's vote, then if they simply elect a Johnson government, they, uh, that's not going to happen. I'm committed Voters to trying to achieve that. To I think I belong within the conservative tradition of politics. I can't market myself as anything else, although I begin to wonder what conservative means these days when we seem to have revolutionary politics from the Prime Minister. Um, so I can offer myself for what I am. I, I don't want to join another party. I'm, I'm very respectful of you for having made your choice. But it seems to me that the best way forward for me is to say I will run as an independent. I'm immensely grateful to the Liberal Democrats in Beaconsfield who've agreed not to stand against me and indeed are now giving me really active support. And in truth, I think on many of the key issues in this election, we're going to find ourselves in agreement. Uh, but that said, I am my own man and I will offer myself on that basis. And I have 
absolutely no idea how the electorate is likely to react because we, you can't tell. I do know I have a lot of support in the constituency from people who previously voted Conservative, equally. First to acknowledge there will be some Conservatives who will be very upset with me. Um, t terrific, although it's very, what you're doing is very unusually modern politics. Standing on, as an independent, obviously with help with, with the Liberal Democrats, but for your principles and without any spin doctors and all of that, and that, that is unusual for modern politics. I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know if you know this, Sam, but I, I'm sort of secretly quite proud of Dominic um, because I was on the executive that selected Dominic in Beaconsfield to be the candidate in 1997. You picked the right one. And, <laughs> and it was an interesting, because you may recall, it was around the sort of envelopes of Mohammed Al-Fayed um, scandal and the then incumbent uh, MP got caught up in all of that. So there was a sort of a short, sharp selection process that took place, which is incidentally what's happening in your seat in East Surrey and in Bracknell as we speak. And it happened to Beaconsfield in 1997. And we were, there were a number of candidates considered, and we, I think we interviewed six at the executive stage, as I recall. And then it went down to the last three, and Dominic won on the first ballot uh, in, in Burnham, uh, in the constituency. I did. And actually, who came second, interestingly, is quite a prominent Brexiteer. He's the lawyer that they wheel out to uh, um, his uh, nephew of a former Member of Parliament for East Surrey. His name's Martin Howe. Martin Howe! And he came second. And and um, I now I sort of reflect back on that, and I and I look at you now, Dominic, and I just think I'm so proud actually to have played a part in giving you originally giving you the opportunity to be the member of Parliament for Beaconsfield. So you because, voted for him on the yeah, executive. absolutely. I mean, I sort just of went, I, I went away. There was a midweek meeting, as I recall, um, and I there went was. away from it. Yeah. And I and I and I remember saying to my father, my, my family, and all of whom are going to be voters in Beaconsfield um, in this election, and saying, I, I think I know. Who who it is it's a, a chap called Dominic Grieve and uh, and looking at you now Dominic and what's happened and what's transpired neither of us would have you know because we've been friends pretty much since that point neither of us would have um, thought this possible that someone like you would be not standing as a conservative in election but you are and I think you know I'm just so proud that uh, we made the right decision in 1997 I think thank you just for the benefit of our listeners Dominic Beaconsfield what kind of Beaconsfield? What kind of seat is it? What is it like? Historically, it's been one of the safest Conservative seats in the country. Uh, I had 65% of the share of the poll in 2017, and even in 1997, which was the worst year, it was 49.8%. I campaigned for you in that one. It was and tough. It, uh, and so it's going to be, um, in one sense, uh, asking people who traditionally have always voted Conservative to think again, obviously. I also, there is a significant Liberal Democrat vote. There are also quite a lot of Labour supporters in 2017, although I'm not sure where their vote will have gone. And in the European elections, the Liberal Democrats came second after the Brexit party. So I'm do know a lot of people. I know the constituency extremely well. Um, and really, I'm just going to go around talking to people. Realise that some of them will say things I may find uncomfortable, but I will explain to them why I'm running and why I would like their support. Uh, and there are, there, there are lots of decent people. It's a place which generates a lot of charitable giving. 
It's got a lot of community cohesion. I know people sometimes imagine people are living behind their security gates, but actually I was, they're I not. was born in yeah. your constituency. It's, it's a good so place, was I. and it, yeah. it does a lot of good, and it's one of the motor power generators of the UK economy, uh, with lots of businesses which are at the cutting edge, particularly in IT. Uh, I've got uh, one manufacturer, Ejector Seats, Martin Baker, and I have lots of there's pharmaceutical a industry. In there's, there's a gag in Ejector Seats. <laughs> so there is the certainly... Next, the next podcast. Yeah. Uh, but I, 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 I'm very comfortable there. And as I say, if they don't want me, they won't vote for me. And if they do think I'm worth keeping on, they will. We'll talk about election week one in a moment. Plus, we're going to look back at the much maligned parliament of 2017 to 19. Did it do its job better than the pundits said? Who will we miss, including but not only departing speaker John Burko? We might even try to predict what we can expect from the parliament that will run from 2020 to, well, who knows how long. It's going to be a very exciting few weeks, so remember to subscribe to the On The House podcast on your favourite app. You'll get an insider's end-of-week roundup on what promises to be the biggest and most important election campaign in decades. The election is finally here, after much wrangling over dates and the franchise. We were all there when the vote finally went through. What were the standout moments of the fight, when or even if to have an election? Is an election really the way to unblock Brexit? Does the country want one? Boris Johnson is convinced the country does, that, and that he's going to win. Is he, is he really unbeatable? What are his weaknesses? I don't know whether he wanted to have an election. Uh, he clearly is plumped for it, and it may be that he concludes that his power will weaken when he's shown to be so ineffective in having not delivered on the 31st of October. And I'd always accepted that if we couldn't get the people's vote, we would end up with an election first. I think it's a challenge we've just got to accept. Uh, and uh, in, I would have preferred to have seen a referendum first, but as I say, it was very difficult and unlikely that we were going to achieve it. So from my point of view, I just want to get on with the election and see what happens. It may well be that at the end of the election, we're going to end up in exactly the same place as we are now. But in that event, then I think the chances of getting a people's vote and having a referendum will be enhanced. So we will just have to go out and have our dialogue with the electorate. And I guess the what is going to be the key issue in this election? I mean, it is the election that needs to settle Brexit. But I've seen some of the Conservative leaflets that try to make Brexit it incidental and that it's a, like a typical general election so you have five bullet points and one of the bullet points is get Brexit done and protect jobs for example and almost like underplaying how seismic this election could yeah. be for the country. Is it going to be a traditional general election or is it going to be a referendum in all but name? I, I don't think it's going to be traditional at all. I, I, someone told me this week the internal Tory polling indicated that there are 150 seats in total in play, not Tory seats, all seats, a number which is apparently historically high. Now, I think the current administration have taken a bit of a punt here going for an election, and I suppose they're working on the basis that there were 400 or so leave seats, they've only got to get two-thirds of them to go Tory, and therefore then they get an election. But the reality is, is that if you want to stop Brexit... You've got to stop a Tory majority. And if, and if you stop a Tory majority, Brexit doesn't happen. Because I think 
if, even if you got some sort of Labour Liberal understanding afterwards, or or or, or a Labour majority, it's policy for the Labour majority to go to a people's vote. Liberal majority's policy is to just stop Brexit. I think realistically, if the Tories don't get a majority, Brexit doesn't happen, and they don't want to talk about it because they don't want to scare off Tory Remain voters. So they're not putting it on their leaflets. The Tory Remain vote, what is it, four to five million? If they want to remain, they can't vote Conservative. I agree with that. Uh, And I think that there is a difference between this and 2017. 2017 was, in a sense, the non-Brexit election. Um, It took place because the Prime Minister wanted the majority to deliver her former Brexit. But actually, during the campaign itself, it was quite apparent that most people wanted to talk about other things. And I think they just thought Brexit was done and dusted. And I do think that's the critical difference. This time round, I think lots of people do realise that Brexit is not done. And one of the tasks that we're undoubtedly going to have is making sure that people understand that if we leave on the 31st of January, it's not done then either. We are heading for what will probably be a decisive year in British politics about our future relationship with the EU, including the possibility that by the end of 2020 we're on a no deal. And I think lots of people don't understand that. And I, one of the messages I'm going to really get out in this campaign is that people have an understanding that Brexit is a continuum. It's something that keeps on going on. You can't just say, which I think is Boris's message, let me get us out on the 31st of January and then we can start thinking about all those other things which I'm going to talk about at the election because that simply isn't going to happen. And I think if we can get that message across, I agree with what Philip said. I think it reinforces that Remainer Conservatives will realise that this is just voting for something which is not in their interests at all, or the countries. But, I mean, the question then is which voter or which is key to uh, this election? Um, analysts are pushing the narrative that Workington Man is the key to this election. Old, northern, white, likes rugby league, league a Labour lever. Do, do we believe that there is any, or can we only answer this question in retrospect? After the election has taken place and we know what the outcome is. There is an air of sort of condescension about this working to man stuff, which I think emanates from the sort of London media type trying to sort of simplify this. There is this sort of mythological sort of persons stood in a northern town who's going to vote Tory because the Tories have reached out to him primarily over Brexit. I don't think it's as simple as that. I think it's pretty patronising to think that these people are going to vote in that way. And I I do think that the Conservatives need to be really careful about characterising people in this way. People are concerned about plenty of issues. It's not just Brexit. And actually, the motivation to vote Brexit was primarily, I would argue, because of domestic issues, lack of social mobility, gap between the, uh, the, the you know the, the people who in work and the very rich, this sense that globalisation was leaving people behind. And we all know this. We, all three of us have looked at this long and hard as to how the country has voted for Brexit. And I think the Conservative Party is really in danger of just coming over as just being rather superior and condescending to the you, north you of England. You think it's patronising to the north yeah, of England? absolutely. I think that people are perfectly sophisticated and they have very clear views. 
And of course, some people voted to leave the EU for reasons of irritation or resentment. Th those things are perfectly understandable uh, and looking at the state of the country and worrying about their own future. But they're not fools. And I think one of the things that struck me so much is we all do, we, have, we, we get pilloried on social media. We've had death threats. And you get this refrain, you've got to deliver Brexit because otherwise the public will rise up against you. I don't actually see any sign of this. People may be irritated over Brexit. They may be irritated with Parliament. Some may want it done. Some who don't want it done would like it over with. But actually, I think people are much more reasonable than the social media tiny minority would suggest. And I think we've got a real opportunity here to have a dialogue and uh, just listen to people and explain to them why we've taken the position we have consistently for the last year, from the time when we realised that Theresa May's deal was really not going to work. And also, when our anxieties started to grow, that our, part, that our party of which we've been members was being taken over by what I see as an extremist sect. I mean, I'm conscious that you've got a rather large sausage sandwich to get through, Dominic, so please tuck in whilst I move on to the next question, which I guess is around colleagues, parliamentary colleagues who are standing down. This is particularly an issue, I think, for the Conservative Party. If you look at who it is, you know, you've got Ken Clark, uh, David Liddington, Nick Hurd, Nicky Morgan, uh, Justin Greening, Rory Stewart... I mean, the list goes on on the Conservative side. Well, is the, I think it's the end of the Conservative Party well, as I mean, we know I, it. I, I mean, I just, I'd be interested to know what you think, Dominic, because the, the, the idea that you're all going to be replaced by soft and cuddly Tories like Sam... Soft and cuddly pro-Europeans. I, <laughs> I, I thought Nikki Morgan's departure is really telling. She's leaving because of a sense of being drained of all energy, quite apart from not enjoying the vilification aspects of being an MP. Well, that says a lot about the future of the party. It is mainly moderates who are leaving. And I think the party is going to be unrecognisable um, after this election. Whether or not it wins a majority, I think that you'll look around the House of Commons and you'll say, well, where are the moderates now in this place? But, I mean, a key point, I mean, this is a very important part of the discussion because there are some soft Tories who think Boris will deliver Brexit and then once Brexit is done, he'll pivot back to one-nation conservatism. And I've always felt that is a complete misunderstanding of what Brexit really means. And Brexit is not something you can deliver and then move on to um, politics before Brexit. I think that once we've left, if we go, he is going to be forced inexorably towards a series of fiscal policies designed to turn as he would see it, the UK into the Singapore of the North East Atlantic. And I don't see how that... I think it'll be rejected by the public, so oddly enough it raises the spectre of a Corbyn government or left-wing Labour government much higher than it would otherwise be. And I also think it's undeliverable. So where we will be in 12 months' time, I simply don't know. Um, he's clearly willing to say almost anything to get elected or indeed change policy. He was deliciously inconsistent in the House of Commons. He was giving assurances left, right and centre and you only had to listen to them and think, hang on, he's just given an assurance to somebody a moment ago and now he's giving an assurance which is completely contradictory to somebody else. So he just likes to get his way. No, I, I think you're right. I, I mean, I would uh, also add that even if you were able to take the e UK out of the EU, 
it opens up a whole series of new debates in which the Conservative Party is going to be at the extreme end. Now, where do we stand on free trade? You know, do we want to be closer to the EU or closer to the United States? Um, where do we stand on environmental standards? Where do we stand on our food standards? On all of these issues, the Conservative Party is going to be on the extreme end because that is what the logic of Brexit dictates. Um, I think it's interesting that six months ago, if there had been a vote on a customs union, for example, you would have probably had about 50 Conservative MPs voting for it. A year ago, you'd have probably had about 100 Conservative MPs vote for it. If you had to have the same vote today, you'd be lucky to have five. So Brexit, the logic of Brexit is that you either leave or remain, and leave means hard leave. There isn't a soft Brexit option, which means even after Brexit is delivered, all the debates that Brexit throws up, the Conservative Party is going to be on the extreme end of it. And that is why I don't think there's any sense that it's going to move back to what it was like before. Or to put it another way, it can't become the Conservative and Unionist Party after having abundant Ireland, Northern Ireland, as part of the Brexit process. For me, that was a defining moment. I agree with you. Uh, I thought that his behaviour towards the um, Northern Ireland in his New Deal showed that unionism was dead. And we also know the reality. Whether we leave with a deal or whether we leave with no deal at all, the risks uh, to breaking up the union of the UK, both for Northern Ireland and for Scotland, are real ones. And I look at this and it really makes me despair to see a party that has unionist in its title behave in this way and and with a complete cavalier disregard for the consequences. I heard a story that a Conservative candidate newly selected in a seat in the northwest of England at the speech given by this candidate said, I want Brexit, I couldn't care less if Scotland and Northern Ireland leave the United Kingdom and got applauded. And that, for me, is the parting of the ways. I, I do not wish to be in such a party. And though look at the, my DUP colleagues, you may say that they've made terrible mistakes over Brexit. I happen to think they have. But actually, they have been betrayed by this Prime Minister. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I reflect back to the, my times as a Beaconsfield Conservative, and I think the, the party I joined in 1992 would not have behaved like this, would not have stood on these policies on the, with these positions and I agree with you this sort of rise of English nationalism within the party is I think both worrying but also it just speaks to the truth that this party the Conservative Party is no longer a unionist party at its core and to suggest that it's conservative with a small c I thought I mean I don't know what you think but I joined a party that wants to pass on a, be- a better a legacy it was better to the future generations. Believed in stewardship, believed in justice in all of its forms. And, and I don't see that at the moment, Dominic. I mean, what do you think? It sort of doesn't feel right. I agree. I said earlier, I'll go to church on Sunday before going campaigning. When I go to church, I pray for quiet government, a state where people felt happy, um, didn't feel overgoverned, felt secure, felt well protected from external threat and where law and order was maintained. But where all this was done in a moderate way with a very strong sense that human, human nature isn't perfectible. But you strove to do your best and to make sure that the most vulnerable in society were looked after, but you concentrated on wealth generation. And now we have revolutionary zealots. They make a lot of noise. They seem to be really happy about turning over the apple cart. 
uh, they're prepared to go into the shop and smash the China and somehow imagine the China can all be glued together. And to watch Boris Johnson prorogue Parliament back in early September, when it was absolutely obvious that it was grossly improper to do, do this, leaving aside the illegality which eventually emerged, I think it leaves one with a very strong feeling that this is a government that can't be trusted to defend what I would say UK core values are at all. And, and that's why I find it so alarming. And he seems to be, as a person, just totally nonchalant about all this. He either thinks he can do what he likes and it won't change, he can pick up the pieces, or he's genuinely a revolutionary. I happen to think he's probably the first. But his irresponsibility is so marked and his willingness to take risks so clear that he's prepared to endanger everybody else. I mean, to reflect upon this parliament last couple of years, from that parliament, from the, the makeup of that parliament, has come Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. The events, the nature of the Conservative Party changing both its membership and indeed the attitudes and approach of parliamentarians towards Brexit over those two years. How do you see this parliament that's coming to an end? I mean, how, if you were going to re sort of review it, reflect upon it, what would you say? I think the parliament that has run since 2017 has been a very remarkable one. Individuals within it have come under colossal pressure uh, from social media, threats, anger, the, the general media. I mean, look at some of the main broadsheet papers. Daily Telegraph has become a sort of revolutionary and very nasty newspaper. There's some very unpleasant stuff out there. Um, all aimed at MPs and trying to insist that MPs should do what they want. You look at all this and has Parliament bent... No, I think MPs have, on the whole, tried to stand up for what they believe in. Uh, they have sought, as best they can, to reconcile loyalty to party with their own conscience, with their view that Brexit, in many cases, was going to be very damaging and a refusal to go along with it. This is exactly what representative democracy is about. People have complained... Oh, well, the House of Commons has not acted constitutionally. It sees the order paper. Well, there is no majority government. And I think one of the fascinating things about this period is that you've had minority governments trying to pretend they're majority governments and complaining when the House of Commons has pointed out perfectly politely that they won't let them do things which they might have wanted. So, I don't know, historians will have to judge. It's certainly been very unusual. At times it may have appeared to be chaotic, but I'm rather proud to have served in this Parliament of 2017 to 2019. And in that two-year period, putting obviously putting yourself to one side, standout performers, people who you think have really performed remarkably well considering how difficult the political circumstances have been. Some obvious people come up. Labour benches, Hillary Benn. Uh, sat and chaired the Brexit, the Dexu committee, absolute leading light in pointing out the flaws in the government's policies, hugely robust in standing up to his own leadership, probably instrumental in turning the Labour Party from a position of almost embracing Brexit to now, I think, just about accepting that a referendum is absolutely needed. Another on the Labour bench is Stephen Doughty, very good friend and colleague, instrumental in bringing the cross-party backbench group together, which we both worked on, uh, and which was extraordinarily successful in building a cross-party coalition. You know, one of the real things I take away from this Parliament 
sometimes people say to me, what have you enjoyed about it in view of all the problems? Well, seeing EU governments have taken an interest in this, I seem to have had rather a lot of lunches in EU embassies being asked for my view about what was going on. So that's always quite nice if they've got a good chef. But the second thing is getting to know colleagues of other political parties. Whether it's Stephen Doughty, Mary Cray, uh, Hillary, uh, there are lots of them. And they are uh, uh, Phil, Phil, uh, Peter Kyle, Phil Wilson, who came up with the famous Kyle Wilson Amendment. So I've been really impressed with those people. And on what used to be our benches, the Conservative benches, um, Ken Clark, obviously, uh, Oliver Letwin, who I worked with so closely over a period of months and who, interestingly, I think, moved progressively from a desire to leave to a realisation that leaving was really not very good and even a willingness to embrace a referendum. Um, uh, you, I may say so, and Sam, um, and Justine Greening, and, I, uh, I, I, and Antoinette Sandbach. I mean, there are, there there's are lots one, there's of one person you've missed out who I think is a quiet, is quiet hero, and that's Gitto Beb. I agree with you entirely. Um, I'm just coming I, to Gitto. I mean, Gitto... <laughs> Gitto doesn't crave the limelight. I mean, he's not sharp-elbowed when it comes to media like, dare I say, quite too many of our parliamentary colleagues can be. He's, he's, he's methodical, quiet, calm, operates extremely well. And the, to him in tandem with Stephen Doughty have, have been incredibly influential in the last 12 months, I would suggest. And it is such a pity that Gitto isn't standing. And I, I think Gitto is exhausted by all this, I, I think. And, and also, I think, just looks at the state of politics and wants to move on to something fresh in life. And I totally get that, but I will miss him immensely. I will miss him very much. He was, as we all know, our whip. So he was the person who went around checking that people would rebel with us when we needed to. Uh, he, he had been a whip. He had actually all the whip's manner in many ways and an incredibly pleasant person and always quiet and measured uh, in times when we've been faced a crisis. So, yes, I mean, I have, I'm going to take away a lot of good memories and a lot of good friendships, and even if I don't win... Uh, they will stay with me for the rest of my life. Yes, and I did note this week actually on WhatsApp, various WhatsApp groups that were shutting down, there was a degree of melancholy, there was a degree of genuine upset and a sort of, 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 of thinking we won't meet again as a group, we won't... There's a sort of an end of a chapter had taken place and I, it's, it's quite difficult to get this over to people outside but it is, it is rather like a business closing down it's like a it's like leaving school it's like those moments in life where you know a new chapter is about to begin and uh, it was quite striking this week how people felt just a bit down about things but then also most of us were going right okay the here comes the election we need to pick ourselves up and go off and battle um yes i agree with that harder for those people who are standing down uh, and as i say there are quite a lot of those and some of them are sad, sad to see the state of the country that they're going to have to leave behind and a sense of incompleteness. But then that makes it all the more important that we do our job and so that, that they that, can come back and see us in three or four months' time and say, you've got it right. And that brings me, I guess, to the final sort of topic, final question. And I think it's a fool who makes predictions at the moment in British politics um, because... 
it's so fluid. I don't know what you're detecting in your inbox or on the doorsteps, but I'm certainly detecting a fluidity in terms of people's allegiance to party. I've not seen... I've done every election campaign since 1992. I suspect you go before that. I think I do. Uh, and, and I think that that means making predictions very, very difficult. But this week, quite notably, John Curtis, eminent sophologist, everybody knows him on television predicted that this uh, the after this election there would be a larger number of non-conservative non-labor members of parliament than previously um do you agree with that and and if so and i'm going to tempt you here to make some sort of prediction uh, you won't be held to it really dominic so just to enter into the fun of it some sort of prediction as to where you think this election might end up i think that there is a real possibility that it will end up with another hung parliament seems to me that unless the Conservative Party is very lucky, it is going to lose a significant number of its Scottish seats. I find it very difficult to be optimistic, and I would like to be optimistic for my old party in respect of Scotland. I think that we are going to, the Conservatives will lose a large number of seats in London and indeed the South East and the South West of England, principally to the Liberal Democrats. There is this view that because of Labour's deep unpopularity, that the Conservatives may accumulate votes in the North and the Midlands. But whether that translates itself into seats and whether it translates itself into uh, compensating for what I think will be the losses it suffers elsewhere, I just don't know. As for the long term... I think I rather agree with you. I think allegiances have been broken. It's not to say that in the long term, people who would now say that there had been moderate conservatives might not go back to the party, but I think it's going to take quite a long time. So I have to say that for people like you and Sam, who've decided to opt to support the Liberal Democrats, I think there probably is a real opportunity for the Liberal Democrats to garner votes, particularly at a time when it's very difficult to be a moderate member of the Labour Party. I just don't see the Labour Party at present able to attract moderate Middle England because the leader is such variance with that philosophy. Yes, I mean, I the, the magic 3-2-3, three, 3-2-2 two, three, three, two, two sort of MPs, I can't see either Conservative or Labour getting to that threshold. And I think it will come down to a you know, very narrow results, I suspect, across the country, which may be regionally different, about who actually has the largest number of MPs at the end of it. And I, I you know, so I, I, I just don't see majority government. Now, whether you end up with various forms of com- parties combined together, my guess is if the Conservative Party falls short of a majority, unless the numbers are such that, that, that it's unavoidable to include the Conservative Party, if the Conservative Party is short of a majority, this may be the end of Brexit. Because I think after it, you'll have had this Brexit general election. Have a hard, the Conservatives will try to make it more than about Brexit. It is in, in, in many parts of the country, that's how it's going to be defined. If it goes the way that the Brexit party, i.e. the Conservative Party, has lost, I think it will be extremely difficult for the parties that then form a government not to then go back to the country and campaign for Remain. And so I think it's, you know, I suppose credit to Johnson, he's thrown the dice, hasn't he? I think it's a bit of a punt. I agree with that. I think it is a punt for him. And we collectively, who've been doing this uh, 
podcast wants to make sure that we can try and get that referendum. And I think we can, and that's why I've decided to stand. It's, this is so important to the country's future, it's worth fighting for. And uh, I, wouldn't, I couldn't have faced myself if I just said, I'm going to walk out. Listeners might wonder why, why Sam's been very quiet for the last 10, 15 minutes. It isn't because he's just been sat there mute. It's because he, he disappeared off to go and start campaigning in Kensington, I think. I think he was doing some media. Uh, but by the magic, the magic of the technology that surrounds us here in the Feathers pub, here's Sam again. We've come to the end of the podcast, and usually we finish by talking about the weekend and how we plan to relax and take our mind off politics for a few days. But there's an election on, so that's all out of the window. Dominic Grieve, what are your plans for the weekend? Will you be watching the rugby like Philip before getting out with the leaflets? I certainly will, but the moment the rugby is finished, I'm going out to Gerrard's Cross and we will start the campaign there with an afternoon of canvassing and leafleting. And then on Sunday, I will go to church and when I finish that, I'll go out to the constituency again and we will go out in Beaconsfield itself. Wow. So at least you do go to church. That's great. Hitting the uh, ground running. Hitting Dominic. the ground running, yes. Philip, no need to ask what you're doing. Yeah. Who's going to win the rugby? Do you have England in... Do yeah, you think England I mean, has if England what it play takes? like they did in the semi-final, I think we're going to be lifting the trophy. Um, but let's wait and see. It's, uh, it's, I don't want to jinx it, but uh, we were so good in the semi-final. I just hope they can continue playing at that level. And for me, once, the, once we've won, hopefully... I'll be off to Wokingham and we've got a Super Saturday campaign thing, the whole constituency delivering a leaflet. It's uh, rather like Dominic. It's uh, We're hitting the ground running. Well, in my case, I think for the first time in the last few weeks, I am going to be running, to, I have to say, I'm going to be running in the election. I'm going to be running in Kensington and I'll be launching my campaign with a rally and some canvassing on Saturday. But I think I'll still be able to watch the rugby first. That's the end of another edition of On the House. The election is on and battle is joined. People of Kensington, Wokingham and Beaconsfield will be knocking on your doors soon. Everyone else, don't forget to subscribe to On the House and we'll keep you up to date. Thanks to Dominic Grieve. Good luck on the stump. Thank you. I'm going to get fit. It's goodbye from me, Philip Ling. And from me, Sam Jima. We will see you next time. On the House was presented by Dr Philip Lee MP and Sam Jima MP. Audio production was by Robin Lieben and Alex Reese. The producer is me, Andrew Harrison. On the House is a Podmasters production. <laughs>